Hello, and welcome to the How to Get an Analytics Job podcast. My name is John David Arianson, and I'm your host. I'm what you would call a practicing professor. I have years of experience consulting in the analytics industry, and I have years of experience teaching analytics in the classroom at Greensboro College. This podcast is an ecosystem that I developed for my students so that they could get world-class career advice from leading analytics experts. To date, my students have got to ask questions directly to analysts and data scientists from Amazon, Apple, and Google. They've even got to talk directly to CEOs, CMOs, and presidents of companies who have been former clients of mine to get insights on how senior managers use data to drive their business decisions. If you're interested in becoming one of my students, check the links in the description down below. I'm currently offering two programs. One is a one-month career services program, and the other is an analytics apprenticeship program associated with Greensboro College. In both of those programs, we take a three-tiered hybrid approach. So you'll have access to pre-recorded asynchronous lectures, live group lectures in a cohort setting, and one-on-one coaching with experts in the analytics space. On average, our students are gaining about a $16,000 pay increase going through the program. On the high end, we've actually helped someone achieve a $54,000 pay increase. This means that on average, our students are recouping their investment between one to two months of landing their job. So if you're ready to take your career to the next level, click the links in the description and apply for our program. I would love to get to work with you. With all that being said, I hope you enjoy this podcast episode. Hello and welcome to the How to Get an Analytics Shop podcast. And we've got a very special episode. So I feel like we've got kind of a, I don't know, like a, a, a sister brother project in this space. So how to get the analytics job meets how to ace the data science interview. So there's going to be a ton of overlap. And Nick, I'm so glad you're on because we've had a couple of conversations off air, but this has been fantastic. So Nick, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks so much for having me. I'm super excited to nerd out about the whole <laughs> job hunt, the interview process. And yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Yeah. So uh, well, we've kind of morphed over the years and like we just started out as a podcast. Now we're doing these live streams where people get to see hands on like you're, you're we've actually got Christina on the back end here. We're going to pull her in in a few minutes. She's going to you're going to run her through the gauntlet. You're going to ask her some like actual Facebook, Google, Fang. Actually, it's not Fang anymore. What's it? What is it? What's the new acronym? Uh, you know, honestly, you could call it Fang, but it, maybe it's Manga or Mang. You know, but no, no, yeah, they don't have the same ring, so we can just keep yeah, calling it Fang. Yeah, true. Point is, some of these big companies and what they ask in these interviews, um, we're going to run through some of those. But before we get into that, so I want you to talk about your book and who you are, just because I know you probably bring in quite a bit of your audience, but if some of my viewers who are new to you, yeah, man. 
so my name is Nick Singh. Uh, I'm a career coach. I'm also the author of the best-selling book, Ace the Data Science Interview. So I wrote this book with my buddy, Kevin Huo, who's a ex-Facebook data scientist who went on to be a quant on Wall Street, and he's one of my oldest friends. Um, I myself have worked at Facebook, Google, and Microsoft in a variety of software engineering and data roles. Um, but these days, I'm just all focused on helping other people in their careers in the data world and ace these interviews and get these like top shops on Wall Street and at Fang. So yeah, that's my background. So okay, let's break it down at a high level. Like, what do you need to ace your data science interview? Uh, you need the book. That's what you need. <laughs> no, man. It's the one thing uh, you need. <laughs> yeah, it's the one thing you need. No, man. There's so many skills that are tested. Um, of mm-hmm. course, just to get the interview is its whole thing. So let's pretend you already got the interview, though, and we can talk about how do you get the interview later. But let's say you got the interview. What do you need? You got to know your probability, your statistics. You got to know SQL. That's a really common first thing that they're going to ask you as a screen. You got to know your coding. That's another common screening thing in the early rounds. You got to have some sense. Of, you got to know a little bit of machine learning, but probably not as much as you think. Um, because everyone worries, oh, I need to know deep learning or neural nets. And it's like, hey, you know what? Just having a good command around regression, decision trees, that kind of stuff is the bulk of the interview. They're not going to hit you with questions about CNNs and RNNs and deep learning this and that. And then lastly, what you kind of need is this like business product sense um, that is tested through either product questions or through these open-ended business case studies that actually we're going to run through just a little bit with Christina later in the live. So, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's kind of what are the main topics in a data science interview. So, yeah, so we kind of, we, well, I've, I've been like, I don't know, trying to digest this problem. Like, what do you need to get an analytics job? And yeah. it's funny because we've actually, the con- last conversation I had with you, I think we whittled it down from four pillars to just like, th- like maybe three points of yeah. a triangle. So you need business acumen. You need hard, you need skills, both soft and hard, which I initially broke into two different like yeah. sub points. And the last one is a personal brand. Yeah. So wait, I, I feel like I want to pause here and kind of break down like what what did you mean? Because we we almost glossed over it. In order to get the interview, you have to have a decent personal brand. Yeah. Can you talk to okay. a little bit about that? Sure, we can talk about that. I definitely wanna, you know, I've done a little bit of marketing too. So I definitely wanna, I know this might disagree with your pillar uh-huh. uh, concept. And I think, I mean, personal brand has worked really well for my career, but I think that that's more of an anomaly. I think that there's tons of people with barely anything on their LinkedIn with no medium blogs, still getting these top jobs at Fang and wall street, especially wall street. They favor these people who are very quiet, but very brilliant um, that you can't even really look up that easily. I mean, these firms barely even have websites. Some of these really hedge funds are ma- managing billions of dollars and their websites almost empty. Um, okay, I think we're talking that. past each other here, though, because I, yeah. I don't think I don't see personal brand as limited to your LinkedIn. I think how you communicate in an interview. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think okay. I think gotcha. that is a broader uh, umbrella. Gotcha. Cause, yeah, because it's like who you are as a professional. Do you have a skill set? And then how do you? F- I mean, there. Yeah, there's a lot of points to it. It's like, are yeah. you a bro dude or are you a Wall Street guy? Are yeah, you yeah, more yeah. like a quiet quant? Like, De- definitely communication is very important. Yeah, I agree with there. When I thought brand, I thought more like, oh, like how many LinkedIn followers do you have or anything? And you don't need to do that stuff to get these jobs. It helps. It helps. But it's probably not the singular focus. You're probably better off focusing on hard skills um, there. Right. Which, right. If it's yeah. communication, then yes, 
communication. Which I would say your hard skills, the one you develop is that's kind of like one of your brand points is what do you know? What can you do? Yeah, exactly. Right. All right. So Christina, uh oh, her uh, her avatar is not on. Christina, are you are you there? Okay. Oh wait. Before we get in, let's acknowledge the chat. So Kelly, tuning in from Columbus, Columbus. Ohio. Siam or Cheyenne. Hey there. Welcome, 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 Larry. And I cannot pronounce that name. Can you? Debanchu. Debanchu. Awesome. Yeah. All right. So let's, uh, let's pull Christina in and let me rearrange this a little bit. All right. So Christina, why don't you intro yourself a little bit? Cause I'm, things have changed. So you're to give everyone context. You were one of my students in the first analytics minor cohort I ran at Greensboro college. Yes. Correct. So, so I do now. Um, I have since then graduated um, and I'm currently in a uh, data science program called DS4A, which stands for Data Science for All. Um, and that program runs until April. So that's what I'm doing right now. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. So actually, you know what? If Nick, if you wanted, like, we can go into, like, scene in the mock interview right now if you want. Yeah, let's and do it. I can it. just pull out and um, you you guys run the show from here. Yeah. So, um What's up? So, Christina, did you have any other questions for me? Like, I, I remember there was some other ones, or should we do the mock interview? Because I think yeah, little, um, yeah. I mean, I I did have a couple questions yeah. um, about like the first couple of chapters in your book. Yeah, um, especially when you're talking about like uh, cold emailing uh, recruiters um, and such. So that was like, I guess, like a concept I hadn't heard of, like just completely cold emailing recruiters. Um, and you know, as I scroll through LinkedIn, like you know, all the time. Um, I see some people giving like kind of like similar advice, but it like, um, I guess I've seen a lot of people say like, oh, like there's no point in like, like emailing recruiters. Like they don't like, I don't want to say they don't care, but some people are like saying like, oh no, you should just like try to contact people that are in the space and then they'll direct you to a recruiter. Um, I wanted to hear like your thoughts on that. Yeah, totally. So for folks watching, right, um, in the book, Ace of the Data Science Interview, I think chapter, what am I thinking, three is all about cold emails. Mm -hmm. And um, for those who don't know, that's where you reach out to someone cold as opposed to like a warm introduction. So Christina, you asked a great question, right? I talk about how you should cold email recruiters. I think that this cold emailing strategy works beyond just recruiters. So my last job at a company called Safecraft, I got through cold emailing the CEO because it was a small startup. There was only um, 19 people at the company. So there was no recruiter. So I just hit up the CEO. And guess what? The CEO is always in their inbox. They're always emailing back and forth. And they appreciate hustle. You know, they're like their whole job with big CEO, a CEO's job and a small company that's going fast is like a third hiring, you know, uh, or maybe half their time is spent hiring and recruiting. Right. So if you can write a really good email to like a busy CEO of a smaller startup, you're probably going to hear back. So I think that cold emailing recruiters does work. I mean, that's how I've gotten interviews at Airbnb, Snapchat, and Cloudflare. But I'm not trying to say that that's the only thing you have to do. Just the principles in that book of how do you write an effective cold email, I think they apply whether you're applying, you know, sending it to a recruiter, hiring manager, or CEO. And I think at different size companies, all of the above work. You know, if it's at a really, really, really huge company, think about your Facebooks or Googles, it's hard to even know which recruiter to email 
or which recruiter corresponds to what job. But maybe you can actually find the hiring manager for Uber's driver analytics team or Uber's Uber Eats analytics team, right? Maybe you can find these hiring managers. So I think um, the principles in the book just kind of apply overall and recruiters are good. So even if people say don't email recruiters, I still stand by everything. (laughs) Um, Yeah. But it's worked for me. It's worked for me and other people. So still email recruiters, but just email everybody. That's the point. Yeah. That's That's probably what I'll be doing, just sending a lot of emails. Yeah. Um, And then I guess another question I have. um, So this is kind of more of like, I guess, choosing, you know, who you want to apply to and like what interviews you go to. Um, I recently had uh, somebody kind of tell me like, oh, it's not really good to um, interview for roles that are in completely different fields. Like they were basically telling me like you should kind of stick to one arena, I guess. Like if you want to do like tech, you should kind of stay in the tech space. Um, If you want to do like healthcare, like kind of stay and apply to healthcare roles versus like, you know, going into an interview and I guess perhaps like they might ask you like, oh, who else are you like interviewing with or like what other roles are you considering? And then telling them like, oh, I'm considering like, I don't know, some retail place. Yeah. Like, it would, like, would that be a turnoff? Or is I, that- don't, I don't think so. I don't think that's a big deal. I think that would be a big deal if you were a much senior person with okay. years in the retail industry. There will always be a question of like, oh, why are you trying to go from like the e-commerce industry to real estate analytics, you know, or you're you spent all your career in healthcare. Why are you trying to do e-commerce? Right. But I think as a new grad, I have not heard of any such thing like that. And um, honestly, these data skills, SQL, Tableau, Excel, they're so transferable industry to industry. There's not going to be that much of a stigma like, oh, you're 22, 23, 21. And hey, why are you trying to talk to tech companies and healthcare companies? I don't think there's anything like that. I mean, one strategic thing, though, is if you build a lot of portfolio projects, let's say in the healthcare space, You've done some healthcare data viz, and then you've done some prediction and modeling type projects, and you've built up a portfolio of that. Maybe your chances are just better at healthcare companies. They're going to respond to your cold email. They're going to call you in for interviews at a higher rate. So maybe that's only one place where it might make sense to focus. But mm-hmm. that's just because you know you might only have time to do one or two portfolio projects. But if you're able to build two or three really good portfolio projects in like two or three different sectors, like you should be able to reach out to most companies because as mentioned, this stuff's so generalizable and um, no one's looking for you for domain experience as a fresh hire. Okay. That's good to know. Yeah. Cool. Um, anything else where we can dive into a mock interview? Um, I think we can jump right in. Cool. So, <laughs> You know, um, for those of you guys watching, right, we're going to be doing a little bit of a mock interview, but also we're going to be taking breaks to just analyze what what's a better answer and we're going to be just deconstructing how we can do better. So in the book, we chapter four is all about the behavioral interviews that are asked to data scientists and data analysts and ML folks. So we're going to ask the first question that pretty much everyone asks, which is, hey, Christina, tell me about yourself. We're going to take a quick pause from the episode so that I can give you some more information about our career services program. Over the last four years, I have developed a very effective approach to teaching the foundations of analytics. And I've taken that same curriculum from my case studies and business analytics class at Greensboro College and turned it into a career services program. 
So if you've ever thought to yourself as you're listening to this podcast, man, John David's students are really lucky. You can have a very similar experience to them. Just check the link in the description down below. My career services program offers you an analytics foundations curriculum. So this will shore up any gaps in knowledge that you might have in landing either a promotion or maybe even your very first analytics job. And then you get to work one-on-one with me to help build your personal brand. So we will look at your resume and also help you develop a customized portfolio. All right, let's get back to the episode. Okay. Um, So I'm a recent college grad. I graduated this past May with a degree in uh, mathematics and business analytics. And I added the business analytics uh, my senior year and completely fell in love with analytics. Um, I really enjoyed being able to leverage the skills I learned in my math classes, um, like problem solving, to apply them to like business problems and real world cases and just seeing it all come together was just really interesting to me. Um, And currently I am a fellow for a data science program called DS4A. Um, I decided to join the program to just continue to learn more um, data science skills and to strengthen the skills I already have. Um, I'm continuing to learn more Python. Uh, We're using a lot of pandas and I decided to join that program because I'm the type of person who just likes to continuously be like learning um, and to be challenged constantly. And hopefully I, I'm hoping that I can find a role that will allow me to do the same things and will continue to challenge me along the way. Perfect. Christina, that was awesome. So what I talk about in the book that you did really well is this structure of past, current, and future, right? So you did really good in lining up, hey, in the past, I studied math, then I added business analytics, I started falling in love. Currently, I'm doing um, DS for all, learning more. And then my future is finding a role that takes some of these skills and keeps applying them, right? So you did an excellent job kind of connecting it. And I think that's something I've noticed a lot of people mess up on, which is like their story goes all over the place, or maybe they start with what they're currently doing, then they talk about their past and they talk about the current and then they talk about the future, what they want. And then they go back, you know, so you did a really good job of delineating that. I think one way to improve your little pitch might be is maybe name drop one or two more specific things you've done. Now, of course you don't want to read down your whole resume, right? But maybe if you could have just mentioned like, Hey, I think, so you, you, the specific details you mentioned were more about your coursework, right? Like you said, you're learning Python in correlation uh, in your um, DS4A course. And in the past, you did business analytics. Um, I think if you could have mentioned, like, I saw you've done some internships, right? You've built some projects. Maybe talking about those kind of things more could have been good. And when I say more, I mean just like one sentence more or two sentences more. I don't mean like go on and on. Nick, that's but, exactly why I popped back on. Yeah. Christina, tell, tell me about your capstone project. Yeah, I, I'm always afraid of going into tangents and like going too long. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think I think that's that's true. That's a very real worry. But I think I don't care about what you're learning. I care more about what you're doing. Right. So mm-hmm. you're telling me that you're learning Python. I'm like, I thought you'd know Python. Right. Or maybe already in my head, I'm like, wait, 
I thought you would know Python by now. You know what I mean? But mm -hmm. if you told me, hey, I'm using Python to build this really cool project, uh -huh. then it still is a different way of framing like, hey, sure, you're using it and you're learning. Like, so I have no fault in that you're learning, but just basically positioning it as like, I did math and business analytics and here's the courses I've done versus like, mm -hmm. you know, I did math. I did this analytics capstone. It was amazing. That's why I'm continuing to do this correlation one. And that's why I want to do a future in analytics with your company. Okay. Can we wait? Can we go into the Christina? Can you like let's let's pretend we can go back in time and yeah. you could have gone into like here is yeah. So I studied math and I got a degree in analytics or a, a minor in analytics. Oh, let me tell you about my capstone in analytics. It's the first time I got to work with real data and solve a real business problem. Could you okay. explain it in your own words and then kind of because I think that this is something that a lot of people struggle with is like um, I, well I think that this is a, a, a short fall of just higher education in general it's like you don't do anything you don't have any like like it's 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 mostly theory yeah and i don't know maybe that's just it's tough to like scale like um shashank actually had a great saying when um he came on recently was you don't get paid to solve problems that have already been solved yeah so like christina you went out into the business world and solved a problem that the president of a fairly large organization had not did not have the bandwidth or the time or the skill set to solve. Right. Yeah. So t tell us about that. So I, I want to just say that bringing that into your story in two sentences is good. Definitely, I wouldn't expect like a whole project walkthrough right in your about yeah. me. But let's pretend we're done with the about me, and now I ask you like, hey, tell me about a really cool project you've done, or like, what's your proudest project? Because that's another really really common interview question right so i think john david you teed it up nicely so let's pretend we fixed this about me so the next question is like oh christina tell me about your most impressive project that you've done okay um so in my uh business analytics uh cohort i had the opportunity um to work with real data for a uh a fairly large company um who had just uh, launched a new product line and we were um, tasked with, and by we, I mean I, me and a, a team of like three other people because um, it was like in a class setting. Um, so I was able to um, get the data from the company um, and we did a cost analysis of about 2000 rows of data um, where we, we were trying to figure out um, what was the, the line of ads that were um, giving the most return on investment. So we had data from Amazon, from Google, and I believe also Facebook. Um, so we had all their cost data. Um, and then we also were able to work with um, their marketing team um, to, you know, kind of analyze the data further because they, they knew a little bit more about how it was structured in the, in the data set. Um, and we also were meeting with directly with the CEO um, of the company about every couple of weeks to just kind of give him, you know, um, a heads up on what we were doing and showing him um, the timeline of, you know, the things we were planning to do later. And then at the very end, um, we were able to deliver a Tableau dashboard that allowed um, the CEO to um kind of like look at the ad spend um, and how it was doing and where they should put more money, um, maybe, you know, uh, dial back on some other um, channels. And yeah, that was pretty much um, the first project that 
um, I did that involved like a real company's data um, where like I worked directly with, you know, different teams um, within their company. And yeah, it was really exciting. Cool. So that that's a that's a great answer. So there's a lot of stuff to work there. So I think one thing you've done really well, Christina, not just in your last answer to the about me, but here again, is that you're telling your stories in a very structured, linear way that's easy to follow. And I talk about this in the book, and people have heard about this as well. It's called the STAR format, where you try to break in your behavioral interview answer into a structure of STAR, situation, task, action, and result. So situation was, Christina, you were consulting for some person. You were tasked with figuring out what kinds of ads did better. You did some actions. You analyzed 2,000 rows of data. And the result was this: you presented a dashboard and that let the stakeholder better understand how their ads were doing. Did I understand that correctly? Yes. Perfect. You'll be surprised at how many people I can't even tell it back because they don't say their story this way. They start with a result and they say what they did and they forgot about what the situation was. And they forgot that this is ad data. So I think that one was a really, you know, big kudos to you that even I could even understand it. So wait, can I take a stab at explaining it from Christina's perspective? I'm totally mansplaining right now, which is yeah, yeah. Uh, sure. Let's hear. Let's hear. <laughs> give me. But Christina, you're leaving out key details that I am. You're leaving out the thing that I am the most impressed with. So okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go into how I would explain it. Yeah. Um, all right. So uh, in my capstone course. I had to work on a consulting engagement directly with the president of a manufacturing organization. They had launched a brand new product line and they were very concerned about how are we going to optimize our marketing budget? So they were, they were advertising on Facebook, Google, and Amazon. Our team was tasked with figuring out which of these three channels had the best return on investment. Now the data came in really messy and this was the first time that I ever saw data that I, you know, it wasn't cleaned up and polished. Um, what I actually had to do was go into the Tableau forums and figure out how to combine these data sources together because there wasn't a uniformed date hierarchy. So there were just gaps. So not every day did they spend money on ads. Not every day did they have sale. So I figured out this concept called a date scaffold that I used to combine all three of the data sources together. Perfect. So that was great. And that was actually going to be part of my critique as well, Christina, that I understood the situation. I understood the task. And did you see how when I was trying to explain back your own project, I kind of glossed over the action. I was just like, and I guess you did something and that made a Tableau dashboard, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, John, you did a great thing of like, or, well, I mean, Christina, you're the one who actually <laughs> did the work, right? So you did a great thing that I didn't pick up on was what was the actual damn action you took? Right. And John, you presented that really well because... Mm. You showed, if I felt invested, like, oh, it was messy. And then you went on the forums and you're looking left and right. You couldn't, and then you found it out. Wow, she's a problem solver. Wow, I don't, I personally have not heard of this word called date scaffold, 100% being honest. I don't know what that is. So I'm already like, wow, that seems something interesting. I know about profitability analysis. I've done my own ad campaigns. I've not heard about that, right? So I would, I would ask you questions there. So I think, yeah, you, I think you glossed over that action part a little too quickly. Yeah, I think the other thing that John David you did right um, that I felt was missed here was like I know maybe for client privileges you can't mention who the client was, but mm -hmm. I just felt like you just said it really vaguely like there was a company. It's like you could say it's a manufacturing company, 
that, you know, you could have set it up just a little bit more like, so it feels a little real to me. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Because I, I get it. You can't say who the manufacturing company was, but there's still something like, oh, they're an energy industrials company that were manufacturing something and, you know, something like that. Okay. So just On like the, a little more context and yeah, a little bit more context, but I think it's not like in terms of like time. So your answer was fine, maybe a little on the long side. So I'm not trying to say like, say even more. It was just like, you were missing one word, a manufacturing company tasked mm -hmm. with ads, you know, like, like use those keywords. Like, and I think you wrote optimizing marketing budget, not you wrote, sorry, you said, John David, optimizing marketing budget. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, everyone can understand what that is because everyone in a business understands marketing has a big budget. You got to right. optimize that shit, right? So I think you sort of said that, but, you know, just in less words, you could still actually convey more information by using some of these keywords and you'd have me, someone's run ads, nodding along like, oh yeah, I've, I've been in that shoes where I've run ads and maybe didn't have it for every date and tried to figure out how are my ads doing across channels, right? Mm -hmm. That's another key word you could have used, like across channels like Facebook, Google, mm -hmm. and Facebook. And, you know, so I think, I think you, you have a really solid start right there. And then I think mm -hmm. on the result, maybe a little bit more besides like I presented it to them, mm -hmm. um, you know, like what happened? So they, they, you know, and maybe you don't have a real result, but where you can. So for people in the audience where you can have a real result and emphasize like, so they turned a campaign off or they doubled down on Facebook ads or they cut their budget by 25% because they realized they wasted money, right? Like that still gives me a little bit more context of like, wow, you actually did something. You didn't just present the dashboard. Like some action actually came out of it. There was a result in that star format. So, right. And even in my pre, um, explanation, I left out the result. It was like, yeah, well, we figured out that Amazon was the, the best return on investment. So we killed the... Facebook and Google ads. But I really yeah. just wanted to highlight the, um, I think yeah, the yeah. most impressive thing is that you were, you were, you found yourself in a situation where you didn't know the answer. And instead of just looking for the teacher to like, you know, mama bird, the answer into your mouth, <laughs> you went out to the internet and you figured it and solved it yourself. Cause that's a, a lot of what analysts and yeah. Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, data scientists do is they go out and they find solutions online. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, I, I think uh, the book is called How to, you know, Ace the Data Science Interview, but it, data analysts are reading this, ML engineers, right? So, I mean, we wrote it for a bigger audience just okay. this way. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. So I, I'm familiar with the analytics job hunt as well. And yeah, I think, uh, yeah, the result was a little bit missed. And I know in you, your story, when you said it, John David, I think you just stopped before the result on purpose just to like, emphasize that well then it's like well, I what, still then what happened yeah. yeah 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 no no and i i know in a real answer you're given the r part but like interestingly enough christina he said that r part of like hey and then they stopped the amazon ad like you didn't tell me that yeah and I, I, I didn't know that happened <laughs> oh okay <laughs> but now yeah. i have that so that next now you time have I'm that so yeah, now there was a real you. concrete action because then i'm like yeah. oh shit like she found something that actually changed the marketing department's allocation like that's a real real outcome so right um sweet so i think we beat this one to the ground i think we're good there uh christina any questions so far about any of this stuff otherwise we can jump into some more technical questions um i don't think so okay no. great so here's a here's a fun technical question that the hedge fund de shaw asks 
So D mm-hmm. Shaw is where Jeff Bezos used to work, I think in 94 before he joined Amazon. So he was a big hotshot VP there, got some money, started up Amazon.com. So D Shaw's still kicking alive and they're doing really well. They asked some really tough questions on Wall Street. But I think this question is tough, but not like insanely tough. I think it's a really good question that most people who've taken a probability and statistics class should have some reasoning around. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the final thing I want to let people know is, guys, I'm going to ask a question. It's more about how you think and how you explain yourself rather than what's your answer. So um, just keep that in mind. And Christina, that means, you know, verbalize your own thinking and we're going to give hella partial credit, right? So if you have some ideas, like, because I don't expect you to have the answer answer and um, it actually requires a whiteboard. So without further ado, let's, let's, let's do the question and then you'll see where we can get some partial credit. Okay. So the question is, uh, say you have a coin, okay? And you flip it a thousand times mm-hmm. and 550 of the times it came up heads. Okay, so 550 heads okay. out of a 1,000 th- coin flips, you know? Mm-hmm. So, Christina, do you think this coin is biased? Why or why not? Um, so I would say no. I don't think it, I don't think immediately it would be biased. Sure. Um, just because, I mean, although 1,000 um, is like a large trial size, I guess, um, uh, it you, I guess you can't ever like guarantee that it's going to be 50, 50. Um, but I think you could maybe conduct like a, like a test, um, using like a cert, like a P value, um, with, you know, you can automate that to even more trials, um, and see if it, you know, if it, uh, if it holds on to like that threshold, um, and it's, you know, above or below the P value, then maybe you could determine if it's actually biased or not. Um, Otherwise, I think just because you got 550 flips, you can't like throw the cone away and say like, oh, no, this is a bad coin. Right, right. Because of just general random noise, it can be 550. That's in the realm of possibility. Great. Mm -hmm. So this is a really good starting answer, right? And I think you've already given, you've already earned so much partial credit because you've already hit on certain words like, hey, there's always some noise or some variation. You might want to conduct a statistical test because that's and see what the p-value is and see you know, where the null hypothesis is that it's fair, see if you can reject that, see what the confidence interval looks like. So, um, you know, like, uh, yeah, that's great. And if I, if you had paper and pencil, you know, you mentioned like a p-test, like, or, or sorry, a p-value, like, you know, what kind of statistical test might you use to, you know, like, try to set that up, you know, maybe we'll solve it somewhere else. And we'll have a table to look up some information. But I'm just curious, Okay, given these numbers, I've given you a few numbers, 550 heads, and there's a thousand coin flips, you know, how would you go about seeing is this coin biased or not? How would you go about constructing that p-value? Um, yeah, so I think like you mentioned, um, setting up like a, a an interval, like a confidence interval to conduct um, like a hypothesis test on. Um, you could use the central limit theorem. Um, Perfect, yeah. And it would help you set up that interval and then conduct the test. Perfect. Yeah. So this is great. And I know um, we can stop it right here because, you know, with paper and pencil, we could have done the full thing, but you, you, you use central, you use the keyword central limit theorem. That was great. Um, another keyword you could have used is Z test, you know, let's, let's do a Z test. 
one thing you would have said is, hey, you know, when you flip a thousand coins, and if it was fair, you would have expected 500 out of a thousand, right? That's like the mean, right? What's the variance look like? So one keyword you could have used would have been Bernoulli random variable, right? Mm Because flipping a coin, it's a a 50-50 event, it's a Bernoulli random variable. And you could have said, hey, you know what? The, uh, The formula for variance of this would have been n times p times 1 minus p, right? And I'm uh, and now by now, I'm not trying to say you'd actually have said this, you know, these interviews happen on a whiteboard or on paper pencil. So you know, and an interviewer would have pushed you towards this. So I'm not trying to right. expect you to be like just sitting there and start saying these formulas, you know, okay. I would have more, <laughs> you know, if we kept going, I would have kept pushed you to that. And what you would have found would have yeah. been 1000 times 0.5 times 0.5. What that looks like is 250. The -hmm. square root of 250 is 16 something. And you start to realize, wow, if the standard deviation is 16, right? So if if you had had 516 coin flips or what is it? 584 on the other way, basically 500, sorry, 484, basically Mm -hmm. 500 minus 16. That's like one standard deviation away from the mean, right? Mm Right. But we didn't do 516 coin flips. We did 550. We're three standard deviations away from the mean. The chance of that just happening randomly, that's like less than 0.1%, right? So now, of course, um, this is where better answers can come here, where it's like, hey, sure, maybe you don't have the exact intuition on like, hey, what's the P-score there? But you could have been like, oh, I think, let's see what's the standard deviation. Oh, the standard deviation is 16. And this thing was 50. That's more than three standard deviations away. That's pretty rare. If something's three standard deviations away from the mean. Yeah. You know, so maybe the coin is biased, right? So I think that would have been like the full kind of answer. And uh, I know just Mm -hmm. for this, you you crushed it. You gave a good keywords. And at these more quantitative uh, Wall Street jobs, they would actually expect you to run through the math. And that's what Mm -hmm. we have in the book, a bunch of practice with these kind of questions, because it's hard to, you know, think on your feet like this and yeah. do the math, but, you know, and that's why our book also has all these like different formulas in there, almost like a cheat sheet style. Um, Cause yeah, you're going to be needed to, to know about, you know, different probability distributions and how to run different tests. So, yeah. yeah. I think it's definitely helpful to go through the, like going through, you know, the different questions in the book. Um, Cause you know, I did take, you know, I'm a math major, so I did have to take a lot of uh, like mathematics, yeah. And statistics courses, but it's never really framed in like a business problem. Yeah. Like yeah. I've never seen it framed like that. And prior to this, I was um, studying for actuarial exams. Sure. Um, so that was more of like the same statistical concepts, like um, different uh, distributions um, in more of a context, but still it wasn't um, right. business context. It was more of like an insurance, like uh, use life. case. Yeah. Yeah, and that's so, what practice makes perfect, right? Because at the end of the day, I didn't ask you some deep learning question about mm-hmm. neural networks. I asked you a question that you learn in, you know, your first or statistics or first or second statistics class about how do you do a Z test or what's a Bernoulli random variable, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's where practice makes perfect because it's it's really easy to um, mess up on this kind of thing. And I asked a room of Harvard students about a month ago. I asked them the same question. There was about ninety folks. And uh, almost everyone's like, nah, the coin's not biased. Like, this is just what it is. And very few people were like, oh, actually, you know what? Let's let's conduct a test. And then we started talking about the test. And everyone's like, oh, yeah, now that you say it that way, three standard deviations, you know, 
but people don't intuitively just say the word, oh, what's the mean and what's the standard deviation and how, how crazy of an event is it? You know, because I didn't, it wasn't an accident that I gave you the number a thousand coin flips, 550, and the mean is 500. You know, I kept mm-hmm. these probabilities simple so yeah. that people could actually manipulate them, you know, so that you don't just wing it and you'd be like, ah, as you know, if it was 502 or if it was 700, you know, both seem likely, you know, they're, they're, yeah. the numbers were there for a reason. But you did great. This is awesome. Thank you. Um, Let's ask another question. John, do you, John, David, do you have any uh, commentary or we can get into the next one? Um, so I am, I swim in the kiddie pool when it comes to mathematics complex sure. concepts. Like I am not, <laughs> Yeah, I'm very heavy on the business side. And then I yeah. bring people like Christina in and Nick, like you in to come do the, the business stuff. So I, yeah. yeah, that's part of the reason why I'm ducking out. So I don't get in the way. I want you <laughs> no guys worries, to just no have worries. this technical conversation. Yeah, this is good though. So this is fun. Um, so yeah, we can I can ask you the next question, Christina. So um, John David, you can go into interview mode. <laughs> um, so Christina, so another kind of as we alluded to in the early, in the start of the interview, I mentioned besides these technical questions around prop, stat, ML, SQL coding that are asked, you're also asked like businessy questions, open ended product or business case type questions, and you know. Again, there's no right or wrong answer. It's more about how you think and how you frame a problem. So, you know, I just want to talk to you today about Uber's, you know, pretend you were interviewing with me and I was at Uber. So this is a real question Uber would ask, which is, you know, what are some of the metrics you think that the uh, Uber should track to measure the success of their surge pricing algorithm? So just so I can repeat it again for the audience, Basically, at Uber, there's surge pricing where the prices just jump up. You know, how, what metrics should we be tracking to make sure we're, we're operating well, you know? And it's purposely very nebulous as a question, right? Because what does operating well mean? Well, that's part of the conversation we're going to have today. But uh, so that's the framing. So, Christina, you can take a few seconds and, you know, start your answer. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> um. So if we're trying to, I guess, evaluate uh, how well it's, you know, working with the current surge pricing and how, um, how it's affecting like drivers and uh, riders as well. Um, so I guess you would have, so the surge pricing, uh, the reason they're doing it is, you know, supply and demand. Um, so the metrics you'd have to track would be, um, I guess from both uh, drivers and riders. Um, Sorry, I keep messing up. (laughs) So from both drivers and riders. um, So you'd want to look at metrics um, like wait times. Um, I know when I recently have tried to take Ubers, it's taking like a long, much longer time to get um, a driver. Um, And then so wait times would be a good metric to look at, Um, I guess, total total rides like how many people are actually taking a ride and then also like uh cancellations um because i know if a wait time is too long sometimes you just choose to cancel it because you get you know sick of waiting um so wait times uh number of rides um cancellations um i think as well as um like how many drivers are in the area um, that would be another metric. Um, and I think 
other metrics uh, kind of like that would not be as um, like obvious to like the people who are driving and riding, maybe like uh, COVID um, rates in the area, um, because a lot of people, you know, are choosing not to not to drive because right. it puts them at risk. Um, so maybe looking at uh, COVID rates, um, maybe vaccination rates, um, as well as um, the mask mandates, maybe like some counties have certain mask mandates and others, you know, don't. Um, and so people might be, not be wearing a mask in certain areas. Um, yeah, I think that's the main metrics I can think of. Yeah. Now, yeah. Cool. So let's let's pause the interview. So, uh, Christina, I think you framed it really nicely by isolating the fact that there's both drivers and riders as stakeholders, right? Both of these parties matter. And I think one party you forgot about was Uber itself, right? In the sense that like, yeah, sure, but like there's total rides, there's the wait times. But what is, does Uber get paid in wait times or rides? No, Uber gets paid in money, right? What happened to revenue? What happened to profit? Mm -hmm. What happened to surge pricing rates and how much extra revenue Uber brought in during surge pricing times? And then how much extra expenses they might've had because surging means they also pay drivers a lot more, mm -hmm. right? But maybe it's not equivalent to how much they're bringing in, you know, because right. they don't get all the money when it's surging, right? So I think you forgot about that one main party, which honestly, Uber selfishly says that's the most important party, you know, like, hey, yeah, what about the money, right? It's all about the money, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that would have been one good one to do. I think it was good that you, but it was really good that you mentioned the word supply and demand. Because that's the core of the surge pricing algorithm. Like, why are we doing this? So I think rather than just jumping into metrics, you did a really good job of just giving a little bit more context that shows me you understood the problem, which is like, oh, yeah, there's drivers and riders. There's a supply and demand imbalance. Surge pricing is supposed to fix that. And here are the metrics we attract. And at the top line metric would have been like revenue brought in. I think it was good for you to mention some of these more interesting metrics that maybe weren't that important but um i'm not sure if i would have gone the covid route because i'm not sure i think that's relevant to uber and demand forecasting in general but not anything specific to surge pricing i think you could have mentioned some more metrics that relate surge pricing times to non-surge pricing times like what's the driver what's the rider cancellation rate in normal times versus surge pricing times right because mm -hmm. maybe it's 2x higher when it's surging prices are 2x higher Maybe twice the cancellation rate is fine, but what if it was 10 times as much? Then you'd be like, wow, no one's really even taking rides. Probably our surge pricing algorithm is like a little wonky. It's not incentivizing riders, drivers to come in fast enough so the prices remain high and riders basically hate this, right? Another thing you could have mentioned as like a more ancillary metric, not a main metric that could have shown that you thought about it a little bit more would have been like something like, satisfaction rider or driver satisfaction right because like we've been there where it's like you hate uber when it's surging 5x you're like what the hell is this app i'm gonna drive lyft right or i'm gonna use lyft or i'm gonna take the bus or something like that i think you could have mentioned something about that this idea mm -hmm. of net promoter score nps or customer satisfaction some element of like sure the money is going up or down but like how do people actually feel about it are drivers retaining on the platform or are we not incentivizing them as much during surge pricing? In the same way, are riders 
churning out? Are they like basically quitting the app after this and being like, you know what? I'm never going to take Uber again because this search thing is whack. It's always surging or the surge is too high. And I don't know. I live in the middle of nowhere and nothing's happening and it's still surging. What the hell's wrong with you guys? Sure, you guys are making money, but I don't want to ride Uber, right? So maybe that's mm-hmm. what happens, right? So I think mentioning some of those metrics could have also rounded out your answer a little bit more because um, I didn't really find the COVID masking stuff very relevant to task at hand, which is surge pricing. Okay. Um, yeah. So, but overall, I think you still did a really, really good job on the answer. So I'll support it. Cool. John David, do you have any ideas on this or commentary? So we're talking about KPIs. Um, The way that I frame up KPIs is like you're, it's a scoreboard metric. Yeah. And I think that that frame really makes sense. And and I think, Christine, if you would have ran, ran this question through that filter of like, all right, what is my primary KPI? It's in most situations for like, I guess a business analyst, it's usually dollars and cents. Yep. So total sales, maybe a secondary could be average deal size, which would be what at the average, average costs that someone gets. Yeah. Average rider fare and then average payout to a driver during surge pricing, or maybe the average like multiple of the surging or whatever. But um, you're very right that you can start top level. And that's actually Christina, that's the one you missed. You missed the most important one. And that's usually the one you start with, right? So that's that's a really quick way for folks listening. That's a quick way to level up your answer. Because, Christina, I've run this kind of interview through so many people. You're not the first person who's going to miss this. And mm-hmm. now that we say, hey, think about dollars and cents, it's like, oh, yeah, of course. You know, Uber tries to make money, right? We forgot about that. But believe me, so many people forget to mention that one, which is why these kind of questions are really important to be asked. And, mm-hmm. yeah, but, hey, the book – has a lot of practice questions. So. Well, okay. Well, can we kind of get under the, the surface a little bit? What yeah. is your, what is the intention of asking this type of question? Sure. So it's just, uh, usually this might be one part of a bigger question, like what kinds of models or algorithms we use to do search pricing. And then it'd be like, Hey, what metrics would we be tracking? Um, just to make sure that your algorithm is working well. So it's a little bit more to test people's ability to not just model, but also think more like, hey, what is, why am I modeling? Or how do I know I'm doing good? Go beyond metrics like AUC, false positive, or like, oh, I predicted something. What's the residual on it? What's the error? You know, like talk in terms of actual business terms. I think that's one reason that people ask these questions. Another is, did you do research on a product? Now, Christina, you know, we've all, we've all used Uber. We've all felt surprising, right? But often if you're at a smaller company, they're going to ask you something similar. And then if you're just like, oh, you know, I didn't really use the product. You see, like we're able to talk intelligently because we've felt surge pricing. But mm-hmm. um, imagine I, I uh, there's tons of companies that will ask the same kind of case study question about their own product or their own problem they're facing. Because for an interviewer, it's very easy. Like, hey, how would you think about this problem? What metrics would you track? Except. Uber surge pricing is easy, but yeah, believe me, there's people who messed up um, because they didn't ever didn't do company research. So that's another thing that they're looking for is like, do you actually understand what we do as a business, what we're optimizing for? Because Uber, it's easy, money and driver wait times and things like that. But if I switched up the problem a little slightly to Facebook ads and you told me you've been a marketing analyst and I try to ask you a similar question on Facebook ads and you don't use words like return on ad spend or you don't, you know, you don't talk about click-through rates. Then I start being like, hmm, how much of a marketing analyst are you? Or like, hey, maybe you're just a general analyst, but I don't think you really know the advertising and marketing space. So I don't think you're going to be a good marketing analytics person at our firm if you can't 
frame it like that. So this, yeah. So these are some of the more meta yeah. reasons of why people ask this kind of questions. Well, something that I, I wanted to kind of um, unpack a little bit is, did you explicitly say, or was this just implied, this concept of goodwill? Um, I totally didn't mention it, and that would have gotten you really good bonus points. I, I sort of mentioned it with, uh, I I mentioned the negative case, which is bad will of like, damn it, why is Uber surging? But you're definitely right flipped around the goodwill aspects like wow i can't catch a cab but at least i can catch an uber sure it's surging but i can't get a cab or i can't do nothing out here and that's actually what happened in the early days of uber why they got market share was like you know when it rains in new york city you can't catch a cab but you could catch an uber sure it'd be surging up but you could actually still catch it though um so you're right i think that i almost if i understood the goodwill part like it's almost the flip side of like hey like because well, the, the way that I would frame it as a business analyst is like we're we've got the market cornered and yeah. we've we can charge them a premium during peak hours because yeah. there's no option and it's like how far can we take that until their goodwill runs out and they yes. delete the app yeah 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 so we kind of mentioned that right because with the net promoter score and looking at retention both on the driver side mm-hmm. and customer side you want to make more money but you can't forget that. If you charge too much, it'll look like, wow, we're making a killing this week. And then they just stop riding Uber the next week because they're like, yeah, I'll only use Uber because it's like 10x expensive. I'll only use it as an emergency. Right. So that's where the retention part matters. Right. Like, like what is the threshold where yep. people are going to feel taken advantage of? Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, those are all really good conversations. That's the other fun part, right? Like, it's just like, how creative are you as a thinker, right? You just have this kind of mm-hmm. open ended question. And usually I pose that to you. And I'd be working at Uber. So I have this internal context and I'd be knowing even more edge cases. And I'd say, well, have you ever thought about goodwill or have you ever thought about customer satisfaction? Like, have you heard of this concept? And, you know, there's some people who have never even heard of the term net promoter score, NPS. And then other people are like, oh, yeah, NPS for sure. And then tell them a lot of details around how they've tracked NPS and how measuring NPS is so hard because it takes weeks later and you don't know what to attribute it to. And then, you know, suddenly that's its own conversation we could have around attribution and lagging metrics. That's a level of conversation that is deeper than what someone else who's, you know, fresh to industry might right. go. You know? See, so I'm geeking out on the business side of this yeah. of like, all right, now we're talking about pricing. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, if I sell a course for a hundred dollars and another for a dollar, you're just going to assume the hundred dollar course is more valuable. Yeah. But that's because it's a superior good. The way that Uber works, it doesn't work that way. A cab ride's a cab ride. It's a commodity. Yeah. So you, and another thing yeah. could be like network effects, right? Because mm-hmm. then there's this issue of like, hey, man, markets don't work in isolation. And they're competing against Lyft, right? Look at Lyft. Like, you know, Uber is always tracking Lyft. Maybe you could have seen like, hey, is Lyft surging too? Because one way to know, and I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of stupid to say this, but it's pretty true. It's like one way to know is Uber surge pricing good. Is, is it in line with Lyft? And sure, maybe Lyft is not doing things perfectly, but they can realize like, yo, if our prices are, ten, if we're surging 10x harder than Lyft, did we make a mistake? Is our algorithm okay? Or is there, what's the reason this is happening? You know what I mean? So they're definitely right. in their benchmarking, looking at Lyft rates in every geo, every 20 minutes for every like two square miles. They're doing that every 20 minutes for the whole, every market they serve. And they're logging that. And well, hotels do the same thing. 
Yeah. Like I was talking to a hotel manager or owner in this in Greensboro and she was saying like, yeah, there's growth in Greensboro and there's like three or four new hotels opening up and that's fantastic because now I get a better read on, you know, how, 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 how strictly can we follow our seasonality? Like, you know, yeah. I mean, if it's holiday season and it's we're in a, you know, a, a tourist town, then yeah, we're going to go up, but like, can we go up a day earlier or a day later? Like, yeah. But that's, yeah, I'm man. geeking out on the business side of things. No, and 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 that's the beauty of these questions. It's like, oh, well, you know what? This reminds me a lot of this pricing analytics project I did last month, and we'll talk about that for a little bit. And I'll leave the interview thinking like, oh, this person's not just done a random Kaggle competition; they've actually faced real business problems. You know. Um, so yeah, that's the point of these interviews. That's and- also a very strong conversational hack. Um, yeah. People breaking down very complex concepts into, well, this is kind of like this, then they can, they can, it's, you're, sh- you're kind of flexing like, okay, if I work with you, if, if you hire me, you're going to understand, like, we're going to be able to communicate and yeah. we're going to get through this to where like, if it's a major hassle to communicate with you. Yeah. No, definitely. I'll be, I'll be honest. I flex it that way where it's like, Oh, this reminds me of something I worked on at Facebook. Your ears. Perfect. Right. Oh, <laughs> You did this at Facebook. I'm a small business. I guess we should trust this guy. He's seen this problem at scale of pricing analytics. Uh, I guess he can probably do that here because you better believe like, you know, Facebook has some really interesting pricing problems as well. And if you're talking to Uber search pricing, you can relate it back to a problem you saw at Facebook. They're like, oh, we're all ears, right? And the best answer is the, the guy you're interviewing from Lyft talks about their search pricing but you know you don't have i mean that's lucky but demand forecasting surging like people at fedex are solving that people at amazon like everyone around everywhere has some notion of surging and supply and demand imbalances that are supposed to be fixed right so anytime you're able to relate that especially if you can name drop it but even if there's no name drop even if you don't work at facebook or google just the fact that you've seen this kind of problem before already tells me like ah this guy has actually done something so, you know, I'm, I mean, my hack is to name drop the company too. And that gives like a little bit of clout, but even if you didn't do that, it's totally fine. Just that you've seen this problem before and whether even if that was your capstone, you know, even if it was your capstone project, like, oh yeah, this reminds me of, I don't know. I don't, I don't know how to relate to your advertising one, but I'm sure there's, there's <laughs> anytime there's dollars and cents involved and a lot of participants and decisions to be made, there's always a way to relate back to something you've done. Yeah. And that's another advice where I talk about in the book, chapter two is all about building kick-ass portfolio projects. It's like, this is why we build projects, right? Because even if you're a new grad or in school and you haven't had too much formal experience, if you're able to relate it back to like, ah, oh, this reminds me of a capstone project or you know what, for the side, uh, for fun, I was scraping like airline data. It's all available to f- make my own travel aggregator. And, you know, I noticed that there was a surge in pricing as well and, you know, something like that. There's, there's ways to relate these kind of stories. And the trick is just to do more things. You know, you can't plan for these things, but just do more right. shit and build gotcha. more projects, which is another advice I give in the book. Do, do you just want to get to another question or do you want to hop over to uh, speaking in portfolios? Um, yeah, we talked about something else. I think these are the two main questions I wanted to talk about. One technical one with the stats and one case one here. And yeah, so this is All mainly right. it. But yeah, we can talk about something else, portfolio projects, if that's awesome. So, oh yes. yes okay. Here we go. So this is for those of you who are, you know, Nick fans and, and brand new to the podcast, we preach Tableau Public as like if you are looking for a start like a kickstart to a portfolio, Tableau Public is free. 
um, and you they actually have their own um, server. So you can publish this. You can do your work in Tableau, public desktop, and then publish it to the server. And then I've actually had um, students who their managers have asked, hey, can you send me a link to your portfolio? And then they've got that covered right there. And then they ask some questions about the portfolio in an interview setting. Yeah, definitely. It's a, it's a really, you stand out a lot by just even having some projects. So, uh, Christina, which project would you want to talk about? Oh, it looks like she cut out. Okay. Um, sorry, it's like my dog was drinking water and I had to stop her because she's really loud. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. I haven't. I have a favorite. Looked at any of these in a long time. So. All right. Okay. So this one, this one's a good one because it's it's also real data. Yeah. As well. So yeah, for folks watching at home, right? Whenever you can use real data, it shows like you've dealt with messy data because real data is often messy. And it also tells me that, oh, like you solve real world problems. These are not just like toy data sets you found on Kaggle. So that's pretty cool. Hard All right, Christina, you want to explain it? Um, okay, so I created this dashboard for uh, Tried Local First, which is a local nonprofit in Greensboro, North Carolina. Um, they were given money to give out uh, PPE grants during, you know, the COVID uh, shutdowns. Um, a lot of local businesses in the area were really struggling. Um, so they were giving out these grants to, you know, um, whoever pretty much applied to them, um, and was eligible for them. Uh, they were going and giving out these, uh, grants to them and they wanted to get some data on, you know, pretty much like who are these businesses that were giving the money to, how are they being affected? Um, what do the demographics look like within those small businesses, um, so that hopefully, you know, it could attract um, new, in the future, it could attract more, um, I guess, like donors or um, more, um, like, I guess, money from, I guess, like government uh, to give more of these grants out in the future. Uh, so they didn't really have a way to get into, like, get information from these small businesses. Um, so what I did was create, sorry. What I did was create a um, like a data um, collection, a, a way to collect data through a, like a Google um, a Google sheet that would be like sent out to these businesses that they would fill out. And then once I got all the data um, from them, uh, pretty much just put it into like a dashboard and tried to like filter it and sort it um, so that you could get some insights into who are the people that are receiving the grants um, and, you know, like where are they and why it's like beneficial to them. Gotcha. Cool. So I'm looking at the dashboard and um, I guess I feel like that was a really long winded way to say they gave out some of these PPE and you were curious on who actually received the PPE mm -hmm. and like what kinds of companies, industries and where were they located? Yeah. recipients of the thing. Right? Well, I think, Christina, you were getting at the way that I framed it up to you of like, what is the game that nonprofits play? Right. Like, like um, they have to show impact on things that funders care about. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So for example, one of them is women-owned businesses. There's mm-hmm. a big push in Greensboro to help support locally-owned women-owned businesses. So what we did was we created a, well, I thought it was going to be interactive. So this one is just static, but we created a dashboard that this local nonprofit could show to their funders to get more funding. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the the scoreboard metric is funding. Right, so like, right. I think so, framed that way, that starts to make a little bit more sense to me. Because right. I usually, usually I should almost see in that text, almost like a question like, hey, like who actually got their grants? And, you know, like I need a motivating question because otherwise I don't understand. I'm looking at a bunch of stuff, but what is mm-hmm. this? What, what What's the question we're trying to solve, right? So that I think that part was lost. And it's a cool dashboard. I like that you use the logos of the different companies. I like the colors. I think they kind of match to Tribe Local. I feel like that green is sampled from there. If not, then yeah, maybe yeah. it's just happy. It looks, it looks pretty polished, I would say. Like, yeah. Yeah. And I don't think I've seen that kind of um, Google Map type looking thing. I mean, I haven't used too much Tableau, so I haven't really seen the Google Map looking thing. So that's cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's cool that you have an interactive thing. Um, yeah, I wish... I mean, do you have any really cool insight from this that you want to call out or anything you want to call attention to? That's um, okay if it's not. I can't really think of anything. So unfortunately, I don't think this worked. So yeah. I, I was actually a, on their board for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that the hope was we're going to build out this visualization and, and show it to all the funding groups in Greensboro. And I think that un- unfortunately it did not increase funding, but mm-hmm. I would say, yeah. okay, so we lost the game, but we won <laughs> in that, like we executed on something the executive director had envisioned. Yeah. 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 So like we built, no. what you could say is we constructed a tool or a lever to get more funding and you don't no, have to say I, that it failed. <laughs> no, no. I, I understand that part. And I think that's okay. And I think that's part of the story and that's fine. If it didn't work out, I meant more to say like, Oh, and you know what? I found out weirdly enough that women owned businesses only got 10% of the funding, even though that this was supposed to be 90%. So what happened there? I don't know, but we brought a light mm. to it, you know, some, something to call out like, wow, you visualized something and you found something pretty interesting, you know, even if it's a little bit more gimmicky or like cool, like, Oh, did you know? Like, I don't know. So I, I'll give you an example. Someone analyzed grocery store orders from Instacart to see like, what are people looking at and they just looked at what's being bought more coke or pepsi now is this a groundbreaking question not really but hey it was interesting and they just had a coke first pepsi chart based on three hundred thousand real orders from instacart i was like oh that's kind of cool i didn't realize yeah coke is selling better than pepsi and uh the pepsi you know diet versions are doing pretty good though you know i had no idea so something like that where it's just a little bit more like you know, like I'm looking at this, but it's like, okay, what's cool about it, right? So that Instacart mm-hmm. thing, it's sort of like, sure, that's not a groundbreaking, like, wow, we're saving the business a bunch of money, but it's just like, oh, cool, Coke versus Pepsi. I can get behind that. Anyone can get behind that as an interesting question that you might not know the answer to. Um, gotcha. So let, let me pull that off. How do you think through, because I actually watched an interview with you and you're talking about, um, building a portfolio that you are passionate about or, yeah. um, or like it's packaged up in something you're passionate about. And then the halo effect yeah. about like, they just think you're an interesting charismatic person Yeah, exactly. because you're talking and doing about things that energize you as opposed to like drain your energy. Yeah. So I'll, I can talk more, a little bit more about that. Cause I think, you know, we, we shout out some key words. So I think 
the halo effect in psychology is where, you know, if someone is more attractive, they ascribe better traits, like they're more trustworthy or they earn more money and they're probably nicer and have better morals just because they look better. Mm-hmm. And that's called the halo effect. That's just what happens. So another halo effect in interviewing is, hey, if you're just more passionate about the stuff you talk about, you're seen as more passionate about data analytics and the company and the job at hand, and you're probably going to show up to work because you actually give a damn. And just being passionate about anything leads you to the be seen that way. Even if you're talking about how you're passionate about your dog or hip hop music, you know? Right. But here's the trick. The trick is wrap your passion, your real passion. Because anyways, I don't have to fake passion for hip hop music. I just love it. Christina, you don't have to fake passion for your dog. You love your dog, right? So it's like if you could make a project that looked at dog analytics, like you looked at 10,000 breeds of dogs on Kaggle, and you guys might be joking, what the hell is dog analytics? But go on Kaggle. I'm sure there's data set after data set about dogs and what they eat and what they do and like animal rescue. There's a way for you to tell a story about how you're an animal lover and for fun, you analyze 10,000 records of dogs and how they were being adopted. And you figured out what kinds of dogs are more likely to be adopted than others. And you can actually predict the adoption rate of a dog given their breed, their age, and whether they have a medical condition or not. So you can predict that. Like, I just made up a project right there, <laughs> right? And I don't even know if this data set exists, but I'm sure it is there. And you know, my project was called Rapstock.io, which is just like fantasy football for hip hop artists. So, mm. you know, people, people love drafting their football players and basketball players on their fantasy sports teams. So I was like, yo, can we do that for music? Right? Because in hip hop, we're always saying, oh, Drake's the greatest of all time. And maybe Lil Nas X, he's just a one hit wonder. Like he'll be gone next year. Like, you know, that's just noise. So I, wanna, I made a game around that and I used Spotify data to figure out how well are these different rappers doing. And I grew that game to 2,000 monthly active users. So that's cool. Yeah. And now in interviews, I got to talk about like, look at how my growth hack, look at my marketing chops, look at how I use data to drive my marketing, look at the product I made, look at how I'm using Spotify data to price Travis Scott and Drake in a real-time basis. And guess what I did with this portfolio project? When it came to companies like Facebook, where I joined their growth team, I talked all about growth hacking, growth engineering, and data-driven growth, which is what I ended up doing at Facebook, helping build their product and use data to drive and increase retention and engagement. That's what I did at Facebook, and that's what I did as a sophomore in college. Are you a fan of Naval Ravikant? Of course, yeah. I love Naval. So Um, so you're hitting on this concept of like uh, permission versus permissionless. Yeah. You created your own job and then showed that you're effective at it and then got the job. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's And here's the thing. You might be thinking like, Nick, you got lucky. You did a growth engineering project and that got you a growth engineering job at Facebook. But here's the thing. When I interviewed at Airbnb and Uber, they also have growth teams. And I talked all about my passion for consumer product and using data to drive growth. And I sent them all the project. And then when I talked to fintech companies, I talked about the stock market aspect. And when I talked to more data-driven companies or alternative data companies or hedge funds, I talked about how I'm pricing assets through alternative data because no one's trying to price straight through Spotify data. So I took one project. I spun it so many different ways. I sent cold emails and the head of growth at these companies are like, yo, this person's actually doing the thing as a 19, 20-year-old. We want him on our team. But that's what they said at every company. Now, of course, I don't mean to say that I got hired everywhere, but I'm just trying to say this is how you get your foot in the door 
and why portfolio projects are so important. And now think about me as a person. Yeah, I'm a nerd, but I like hip hop music. And sometimes my interviews, we'd just be talking about Drake, <laughs> which I could talk about all day, you know, and it stopped being right. an interview. They're like, oh yeah, we, we like that guy. And then I talk about how I used to be a DJ and like, oh yeah, that guy's like going to be probably cool to work with and clearly gives a damn about music and tech and data. And like, yeah, I'm sure you can do the job. Like we used his website, you know, and I had interviews log into my website. Now, I mean, I got to do that because I have really good software engineering chops, but I'm trying to say, Christina, you have dashboards about soccer. If you somehow know that your interviewer likes soccer or even Coke versus Pepsi, that's something that everyone's like, hey, are you a Coke fan or Pepsi fan? You might find my Tableau dashboard of Instacart orders pretty interesting. Link here, right? So even if you're not passionate about Coke versus Pepsi, people are always, you know, they're somewhat curious about that or they're somewhat curious about like, Yo, what are the top brands of cookies being sold? Is it Oreos? Is it Milano? That's all right there. And you can link people to it. And who's going to be like, yo, I hate cookies. I don't want to look at your graphic. Like I'll click, click any day into your analysis of the top cookie brands being sold. Right. So I'm just trying to show you how you can stand apart from other candidates because it's like you're showing, not telling me that you're a hardworking analytical person. You're just showing me your dashboard that's public. And that's the beauty of yeah. all of this. And I showed people my own project. And that's a halo effect of like, yo, this guy's actually kind of cool and they like data. And, you know, Christina, if you visualize some of these things and wrap it up neatly, it's like, oh, wow, Christina loves soccer and look at her cool soccer analytics and like look at what a go-getter she is. If she can analyze soccer and these kind of things, maybe she can analyze sales deals. It's not that different, to be honest. I guess a question I have on on that end um, would be like, okay, so... Lately, I've been doing a lot of like, I guess, little um, assignments through the program that I'm in. Um, But I feel like they're so small, like, I don't know if like, they're even like, I guess, worth like putting them on like a GitHub or like a a portfolio, because like, recently, we did like a, like a Python analysis of like, snap test data for um, dog recovery rate and like spinal injury, something like that. Um, and so we did a lot of like Python and, but it was just like a really small data set and it was like just a couple of visualizations we got out of it. So I don't know if that's like, if I start putting a lot of small things like that, would it just kind of all get lost? And it, it, it does get lost. So I think for learning, it's really good to do these small projects, but as you're investing in the job search, having one big project you can talk about yields way better results because in an interview, Usually they let you talk about what project you want to talk about. And they say, hey, what's your proudest project? Just like I asked you. Or what's the most interesting thing you've worked on? And, you know, having nine different things scattered around, not so helpful. Now I know, so yeah, just where you can do it on one project and just, you know, keep growing that project. You learn Tableau, make a visualization. You learn Pandas, let's do some modeling. You did some SQL, let's run some SQL queries against that same data set and find some more insights, you know? Just, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think the trick is to find a project that ties the, the little things together. Like, you know, if you're you're writing some type of a data pool, okay, well, let's find an interesting data set. And it just, yeah, it takes a lot of, um, yeah, creativity. I think um, yeah. just, just, just thinking outside of the box. Nick, I did want to push back a little bit of like, Okay, so the the adage is never do free work. Like, how how does that kind of plug into? Is this just? Are you seeing this as like um, kind of like how people see online courses? Like, let's let's do a side hustle, not worry about monetizing it. Or should you actually? Now that I'm thinking about it, 
focus building something that you plan on monetizing means that you're going to take it much serious, more serious. It's like there's going to be discipline there. It doesn't have to be hugely like monetizing. I think uh, I I don't know about the whole don't do free work. Like this is all it all starts out of passion. Like I when I was making my stock market for rappers, I didn't think I'd be a billionaire. I just was like, yo, this is going to be really cool if I can quantify whether I can bet on Drake or not and like see how he's doing in real time. So I think like. Yeah, keep it keep it small. Keep 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 it like as a passion project. I think if you can monetize it, that's cool. And if you can talk about that, that's even cooler because then I think you're entrepreneurial. But I wouldn't push people to think about that because once you start thinking about making money, then it's like ah, do people care about this? And then you start doing something boring. And then I don't know if you're really hurting for money, maybe. But like just generally no, because I think we're just trying to make a really cool portfolio project and that might not be in line with making money. Right. So I, I almost want to like say no, like yeah. visualizing soccer players. I'm not sure anyone would pay you for that, but it would be something that you could do and it could be really cool. Um, well, okay. I guess the, where the adage comes from is I've, I've had people approach me like, Hey, will you do free work for us? And then it'll be your interview. And it's like, that is a huge red flag in my opinion. Oh yeah. I, I guess most of these big companies don't do that, right? Because it's like, how yeah. are you going to help Uber without Uber's data? So there's, they're not going to give you their proprietary data. Yeah, so it's just, well, it doesn't really happen at the bigger well, companies. Well, what's interesting is my neighbor um, is a, well, he used to be an engineer at Facebook and he got a job at, oh man, I'm blanking on it, Adobe. Okay. And apparently a lot of these big companies just have open source projects. Yeah. So you can work on the project with the team he worked on the the team. He worked with the team that he got hired for for six months before they officially hired him. Yeah, yeah. I think open source is a different ballpark. Um, but I'm talking about more for like analytics type stuff and data science. Mm-hmm. You know, it, maybe one in a thousand companies is going to try to steal your work and be like, "Oh, do this analysis, haha." Jokes on you. This was actually our work. And, you know, you did our work for us. But that's like one in a thousand occurrence. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, actually, you're the. I totally had a question like that he couldn't answer because he's an engineer. Um, is that is that open source concept? Does that apply at all to the analytics or data? Because the major ha- like obstacle I see is that the data is private. You know. Yeah. No. But uh, it, it does. This idea of doing work in public totally does because again, like there's all these really interesting data sets. Think about all the COVID data sets that came out and True. how many interesting people sorry, how many people made interesting projects using this data sets and different trackers. So I think it definitely applies. Um, yeah. And I mean, that's what we're doing with this Kaggle stuff. There's so many interesting Kaggle data sets that you can just put on GitHub and analyze and just keep doing it and show off to people that you know how to do your stuff. Gotcha. All right. So Nita is asking, um, so how do you make your resume stand out? What kind of yeah, projects make it, it do- I mean, I feel like you kind of already covered it. Yeah, we covered it. So the kind of projects is just sort of like, this is where it's like, oh, everyone hears this whole spiel about do what you're passionate about and be creative. And then they're like, okay, cool, Nick. So tell me what I'm passionate about and <laughs> tell me how, don't, yeah, tell, be creative for me. I'm like, yo, I can't, I can't do that. You know, like, that's the whole point. Like, I don't know what you're into, but uh, yeah. As I mentioned, these bigger projects, and it's also sort of like this idea I want to push back on people like, well, I don't know what to do. Sort of like, look, we just made up this project around pet adoption, right? Like, think about anything in the slightest. We talk about hip hop music, and there's a thousand things. You can analyze rap lyrics using NLP. You can do some 
in investigations into public Spotify data and predict who's going to win um, a Grammy. You know, there, there's a thousand projects there. So that's what I'm trying to say is like, there's no like, oh, well, a Grammy prediction project would have been better or an NLP project is better than a prediction project. It's like, yo, if you're into NLP, go do NLP. If you want to do Viz and you want to visualize what are the top brands, rappers shout out. Is it, you know, what, what are the most car, you know, what cars are shouted at the most? Some people rap around Benz, some people rap around about their Lambo. You know, that's like a quick project that you could visualize. That would be pretty interesting. Like, hey, what car brands are shouted at the most? That's like a Tableau project, right? So I don't know. I don't have the answer for you, but there's a bajillion ideas that you can just spitball. Uh, it's up to you to do all that. Wait, have you heard of that um, subreddit called Data is Beautiful? Yeah, totally. Yeah, so, uh, it's a great place for inspiration. Our data is beautiful. Um, sub, yeah, totally. I misspelled it. Data. It uh, yeah, I was about to say, if we can just pull this up right, right fast. Um, communities and people. Oh, there it is. All right, let me share my screen. Yeah. Let's see if there's any, if just anything interesting that's on here. I mean, we're totally going down. I mean, see, this, this stuff is fascinating. It's... This is an animated map. Right. And it's yeah, public. this is exactly There's, what you're talking about. Yeah. This data is here in the US. You could have just made this for Virginia and you're applying to a job in Virginia. I'm like, yo, this is kind of cool. Right. So like, uh, right. I guess Nita, it's a framing issue of like, there is no right project. It's like, just figure out where you can get some momentum. And I mean, yeah, actually just, kind of glad that we just went and pulled it look up. look at this like, percentage of baby names that begin with each letter of the alphabet like this is not deep learning this is no. just straight up <laughs> what's the first letter right and it's still cool look at that eight points <laughs> you know that's what i'm trying to say the bar is sort yeah, of low, I mean, this is why it's like i can't be creative for you if the bar is that low that even baby names is interesting it's like cool this is another interesting one number number of soccer fields per 1000 inhabitants in europe I mean, yeah. Yeah. So just go, I guess it's, it's self-reflection just figure out like, what are you interested in? Yep. Find data related to that and just start analyzing it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be super, super deep learning. Um, cool. Cool. All right. Let me pull her question out. I feel like there were other questions that came up, but we kind of tackled them. Yeah. Using just, going through the uh, different projects. Oh, wait, here we go. Melina is asking, how do you answer a technical question that are you, okay, th I like this. Yeah. Because I think, Christina, we didn't prep you on, tell us about the Capstone project. Like that came organically. And then um, Kelly actually grilled you a little bit in the chat saying, watch the ums. Yeah. Watch the, watch the verbal fillers. Yeah, yeah. my ums are a work in progress. It happens. It happens. It's fine. Um, wow. I just said, um, right there. <laughs> Damn it. Now I'm self-conscious too. Yeah, now you're in your head. And yeah. And now I want to say a uh, certain thought. Okay. Partial credit. How do you answer a technical question in an interview that you're not familiar with? Just be upfront. Hey, I don't know the answer to this, but here's how it starts. Here's what I'd look up. Or, hey, I don't know this. This part's confusing, but I think it sounds a lot like this. These are mm -hmm. all different ways of getting partial credit. These things are, like, conversational. So 
it's okay. So same way SQL, they can ask you a really big complex SQL query. And you say, look, I don't know how to do this window function part, but I know we need to join this table with this join, uh, table. So let me write the join right here. I also don't know how to do this like rolling average, but let me at least filter out this with this where query, you know? That's how you start getting closer and closer. And then at least the interviewer is like, okay, cool. Maybe you didn't know how to do an rolling average or you didn't know this thing about a window function, but you at least know how to join. And that's, you know, that's a foundational concept that still people can mess up on, right? So that, that's your approach to answering these technical questions, even if you don't have the exact answer. Well, you, you mentioned that um, you don't need as much machine learning as most people think. How much SQL should you know? Like, for example, I am SQL illiterate. I, I know how to find people's like SQL queries, copy them and then like reappropriate them yeah. for my Tableau project. But I'm, uh, I'm not that. Is that because you're mostly using Excel or is it because you're doing more stuff in Pandas or Dippler and R or? So I use, um, I, what's funny is that I'm more well known as a Power BI developer. Like I've had, I don't know, 300,000 people take my ta Power BI courses. I do all my consulting work in Tableau. <laughs> so I, I like, yeah. all I need to do is like, if it's a, um, if it's a calculated column, like that's some base level SQL. Yeah. And I'll just go on like the R Tableau subreddit and figure out like, okay, this is similar to what I want and then use the syntax. But yeah, it's a really common screen. You definitely want to know your SQL for data science and data analytics jobs, especially at these big companies, it's almost table stakes. So especially data science, a mm -hmm. company like Facebook or Google, it's table stakes. So you're going to ask you a SQL question and you should probably get it exactly correct um okay it, yeah it's just it it is what it is so, so you need to know advanced like so what you, I, I guess it's almost like a language right it's like proficient in sql yeah yeah but now what you don't need to know is like advanced date time library type stuff but you mm -hmm. need your core concepts of joins filtering with where like um writing you know partition over by you know or doing nested subqueries you should know those kinds of things. Okay. Um, but they're not going to be like, oh, you know, some advanced string stuff that you have to look up. Do you know what I mean? Like some stuff of like lowercase this or like, you know, insert this or do, you don't right. need to know or index that. They're not going to ask you about it. But it's like, yeah, you should be able to be able to join data effortlessly. You should be able to write subqueries. You should be able to find average, min, max without a problem. So I'm going to do the kind of like thing right now. Are you ready? You're what? So I'm going to do the kind of like thing. Like, so it's kind of like learning Spanish and being able to go to go on a trip to Mexico and like be able to like order food at a restaurant. So, you know, the verb, like you have n not necessarily like a huge vocabulary, but enough to like be conversational and you know how to conjugate. So it's like you have functional knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. The foundations. And, yeah. But I, I would still say at these top companies, it is. It is, uh, it is uh, more cutthroat than that, but it's okay. more like you need to know how to order, but they're not going to ask you to order escargot in Spanish. They're going to ask you to order a banana, but you better know banana and apple and orange and pizza and burger. Does that make sense? Right, right. So, you know, because, you know, cause I don't know how to spell escargot in English, or maybe I do, but the point is like, hey, there's stuff that even the most advanced developers and analysts will have to look up. So they'll let you look that up. They're not expecting you to memorize that. But I'm trying to say like core things that are very core, they should expect you to do flawlessly, right? Which is why yeah. they, these companies ask these coding interview questions as well, where they ask you about like, hey, you know, 
reverse this array, you know, make every element from the back and the front, every element from the front to the back. Because no matter how much you look up stuff in programming, if you can't write a for loop or you can't manipulate an array, then you're not a good fit. Right. Well, because it's like you, if you're just researching how to get started on the project, you're not working on the project. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. All right. Well, I we have been talking for man an hour and a half. This is yeah. a, time just flies by with you, Chris, Christina. Are you your camera cut off? I'm again. so yeah. It just it cuts off a lot. It buffers a lot if I have my camera on. Okay. Oh. All right. Well, any last questions for Nick? This has been fantastic. Thank you guys both for being on the live stream. This is awesome. Yeah, this is a lot of fun. Uh, thanks for having me and thanks for being a good sport, Christina. This was a lot of fun grilling you and, <laughs> but you, you, you did phenomenally and it was really good to just put these concepts into practice. So yeah. yeah thank you awesome. for the critique. Yeah. Well, and everyone in the live chat, thanks for participating. I will see you guys next week. Actually, I'm Christina. We're, we're having Ben Knuff on. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So one of my students got a, a job up in D.C. doing uh, contracting, and we're going to have like a, a six-month follow-up. Awesome. I'll definitely tune in so to see how he's doing. Also, let me put in my little plug of everyone should check out the book, Ace the Data Science Interview on Amazon, and then feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. I post almost daily with 67,000 followers. It's just Nick Singh on LinkedIn. I also have a newsletter, I have an Instagram, so you can find all of that though if you just look me up, nicksing.com, as well as other free resources around job hunting, analytics, data science, it's all over there. Uh, just look me up. Gotcha. Well, I'm sure they're going to check it out because this has been this has been phenomenal. I like just getting deep in the weeds. I think our audience just loves that. Yeah. Cool, man. So, all right. Well, all I right. hope you guys have a good weekend. I'll see you. Yeah, see ya. Thank Bye. you. Hey, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I'm curious, were there any valuable insights or lessons that you learned? One thing that could hugely help us out is if you just took 30 seconds and left us a review with a little blurb about what you learned. Thank you so much for your time and attention, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Hey, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. I'm curious, were there any valuable insights or lessons that you learned? One thing that could hugely help us out is if you just took 30 seconds and left us a review with a little blurb about what you learned. Thank you so much for your time and attention, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.